Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. What a great summary of the gospel that we've just sung. It's a perfect song as we come to Zechariah. We're turning almost to the end of the Old Testament again. Those of you who have been with us know the context. We've been talking about the Israelites who have returned from Babylon. They're back in Jerusalem and they've begun again to build the temple after a 15-year hiatus. And yet even as they begin to build again, they're faced with discouragement And they continue to evidence divided hearts not fully committed to the Lord. And so in the face of this discouragement and disobedience, God comes to Zechariah and calls his people with eight visions, eight pictures that summarize the scope of salvation, painting, if you will, this mural of hope. Last week, we looked at the first three visions, which all summarize this great reversal that's coming where the nations who are at ease, God is angry with them and will bring about judgment. But God is again about to show favor to Israel, promising a rebuilt temple and city, along with peace and prosperity for God's people. And today I want to pick up and look at the remaining visions and largely want to look at at the cumulative weight of these visions, the cumulative picture that they provide but I want to look particularly at vision number four in Zechariah, number, uh, Zechariah chapter three. And we'll look at this vision in greatest detail. So if you'd begin, let's read chapter three of Zechariah together. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways in my, and, uh, and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Let's pray. God, this is your word that you've given to us. We thank you for this vision, this picture of hope. We pray 
that we would hear the hope of salvation in it today and that our hearts would be encouraged for Christ's sake. Amen. John Wesley is a name that many of you will know. He's a revival preacher in England and America, the founder of the Methodist denomination. John Wesley had a particular experience one night when he was five years old. He awoke just before midnight to find that the entire house was on fire. And the family had actually realized the house was on fire, and they'd all made it out safely and somehow missed John. Now, he was the 15th of 19 children, so maybe that had something to do with it. But John found himself in an upstairs bedroom with the stairs on fire and the roof on fire. And in a dramatic fashion, a man from the town came and stood on the shoulders of another man and was able to pull John from the window moments before the roof caved in. And this event was emblazoned on John's memory. And as a gift later on in life, someone drew a picture of the man standing on another man's shoulders, pulling him from the window, a picture which John kept for the rest of his life. And at the bottom of that picture, John Wesley wrote the words of Zechariah chapter 3. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Because John recognized that he was not just a man plucked from a physical fire in a second story window. But if you know the story of John's life, he was also a soul plucked from the fires of hell by the blood of Jesus Christ. The main point of these visions in Zechariah is that God is encouraging his people to live in faith and hope and obedience by laying out the full scope of his plan to save and bless Israel and all the nations who will come and join themselves to the Lord. But as he shared this picture of abundant blessing in the first three visions, this fourth vision plays a very important role in the overall picture that God is painting. Because any Israelite who would be listening to Zechariah is forced to ask a question. See, all he has to do is look around him to see the burnt down walls of Jerusalem, to see the evidence that God's people are a sinful people, and the evidence of God's judgment is all around them. And so the question that they have to be asking is, sure, these are great promises, but are we really capable of receiving them? We're called to rebuild the temple, but what good is a new temple if Joshua, the high priest, and the people are sinful? How can they come into God's presence? And knowing Israel's history, it sure seems that they don't deserve to come into God's presence. How are they worthy to come into God's presence? And that's why vision number four and its picture of the brand plucked from the fire and new garments being given to a sinful high priest are so important to this picture of blessing. As the vision begins, you see Joshua, and you remember Joshua was the high priest there in 520 BC. He's standing before the angel of the Lord. But if you think back to the Old Testament, any high priest, in order to come into the presence of the Lord, they were to be dressed in pure, clean garments with a turban on their head declaring holy to the Lord. They needed to be dressed in a way that would enable them to come into the presence of a holy God. But this Joshua, this high priest, is dressed in robes of filth. The word for filth here is one that's often used literally for excrement. 
In other words, he doesn't have just a robe with some dirt spots on it. He is clothed in the filth of sin. And as Satan stands up to accuse him, it would seem like Satan has a slam dunk case. Joshua and the people are sinful. They are not worthy to stand in the presence of a holy God. And so Satan states the obvious in some ways in accusing Joshua. And you see Joshua, what is his response? Nothing. He says nothing in this chapter. He stands silently. For what response can you give dressed in filthy robes before the presence of a holy God? But into this silence, the Lord speaks in stunningly in a sentence that should surprise anyone. The Lord issues a rebuke not to Joshua, but to Satan. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And do you see the ground upon which the Lord rebukes Satan? Do you see why God rebukes Satan here? Because the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. It's the Lord's action. It's the Lord's sovereign decision to choose Jerusalem that leads him to rebuke Satan. How dare you, Satan, bring an accusation against me and my city and my people whom I have chosen. And because the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, the angel of the Lord, and if you were here with us last week, you should be thinking the angel of the Lord, this pre-incarnate vision of the second person of the Trinity, this angel of the Lord commands that Joshua be stripped of his filthy garments and that he be given new clothes that are pure garments to wear. For, says the angel of the Lord, I have removed your iniquity from you. And what a vision as this man stands before God dressed in sin and shame. God declares, I have chosen him. I have taken his sin. Therefore, dress him in pure clothes. Here's the gospel in a sentence, in a picture. But perhaps one might want to press the case. Perhaps one might see this vision and say, well, that's well and good. But can a just God merely sweep sin under the rug and declare that a filthy person can come into his presence just because he's got a new set of robes? And so God goes on to tell Joshua two more things. And there are two things that might appear to be in tension. And yet there are two things that always go together in Scripture. On the one hand, in verses 6 and 7, the angel of the Lord says to Joshua, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule and I will give you the right of access into the heavenly courts. See, salvation is a gift that we could never earn. But when God acts to clothe us in pure robes, he always then calls us to walk worthy of the clothes that he has given us. It's like a girl, like a a girl who is invited by her friends to come play in the mud who says, oh, no, I can't go play in the mud. See, I'm wearing my new dress. So we're supposed to to respond to the world, oh, oh, no, I can't go romp in selfish pleasures of the world. See, I'm dressed in the new garments of righteousness that my God has given me. And this is what God has said all through Scripture. He comes to Abraham and initiates a covenant and then says, walk before me and be blameless. 
Jesus comes to an adulterous woman and says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. Chapter 6, when we get there, and Zechariah is going to close these visions with the same comment. This will come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord. Now this might sound like it's putting all of God's promises on shaky ground. After all, we know ourselves how good we are at obeying all God's commandments. Does this make God's promises conditional on whether we're good enough to obey them? And of course not. Of course not. This condition doesn't put God's promises in jeopardy at all because it is His Spirit that works obedience in His people so that it is all a gift of His grace. But this condition does remind us and warn us, as one commentator puts it, that nothing is promised to the unbelieving and disobedient who will not repent except the certainty of God's wrath. That's on one end. But on the other hand, Scripture also makes it perfectly clear, doesn't it? That none of God's people can walk in perfect righteousness. Because our born sinfulness continues to show up, God's gift of pure garments does not do enough good on its own because we can't keep those garments pure in our own power. And so God's justice must be satisfied by something other than our obedience And this is where the most glorious news of this vision comes in. If you look at verses 8 and 9, you will see that God immediately comes and says, You, Joshua, and your friends are a sign of what is to come. For behold, I will bring my servant, the branch, and I will set a stone before Joshua on which I will engrave its inscription. And any Israelite who heard this comment would have multiple connections going off in their mind because Isaiah had already talked about the servant of God that God would send who would be his Messiah. And Isaiah and Jeremiah had both talked about the branch or the shoot that would come from the house of David who would execute justice and righteousness and save Israel in that day. The stone is a little bit more confusing of a reference. Perhaps the seven eyes on it likely indicate God's presence with it. But likely this also refers to the Messiah. That rejected stone that God would make the cornerstone. Though that reference is a bit more debated than servant and branch. But you see the point of this verse. The point of this verse is quite clear. Joshua's hope, just like the hope of all God's people, is to look forward to the work of this coming servant branch who in one day, by giving himself up to die on the cross in our place, would remove the sin of all God's people, who would undercut any accusation that Satan might make against them, and who would clothe us in his righteousness, giving us a solid hope for access to the presence of God. See, yes, we are called to walk worthy of the clothes that God gives us, but our hope, the ground of our hope and our acceptance is in the work of this Messiah who will come and take away sin in a day and give us the clothes of his righteousness. And then the vision ends. The work of this servant branch brings about peace and prosperity such that God's people are freed to overflow in hospitality and generosity out of the abundance of God's blessing. And we see that in this picture of each person inviting his neighbor under his vine and his fig tree. I want to pause just for a minute and ask 
three questions that I think we should ask ourselves by way of application from this vision. First question we should ask ourselves is, do we acknowledge the picture that this vision gives us of how we stand before God apart from Christ, clothed in filth? See, voices all around us today are saying that the church's talk of sin is shaming or repressive, and that freedom and happiness come from fulfilling our desires rather than denying them. Voices around us are telling us that we are victims of hardship brought on by others or by our circumstances. And so no one can blame us for the efforts at comfort and distraction we go to. And our own hearts will constantly be minimizing our own sin, asserting that we're doing our best. But this vision reminds us that apart from Christ, we stand in filth. We are born on Adam's team, sinners seeking to live life our way, not God's. And would we really think that we could beat the curse of God's justice on our own? No, we must acknowledge how we stand apart from Christ. But the glory of this passage is the image of God's salvation, isn't it? In which he removes our sin, taking away our filthy garments and clothing us instead in pure garments. What Zechariah is showing us here is what theologians refer to as God's justification. That God acts of his own free grace to forgive us all our sin and accept us as righteous in his sight only for the sake of the righteousness of Christ that is given to us through faith alone. And this gift of salvation is so well pictured by a change of clothing that is given to us by God's grace. Isaiah had used the same picture. Isaiah 64 talks about how all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. But in Isaiah 61, he says, God has clothed me with garments of salvation, has covered me with robes of righteousness. Hymnody picks up on the same picture, doesn't it? Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. And when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That is our hope. And to all who are discouraged or weighed down by sin, we look to Christ who has died in our place and taken our sin and taken our filth and given us his righteousness and clothed us in it that we might be accepted in his sight. And so the second question is, have you looked to Christ? Have you come to him as our ground of acceptance? And third, this vision asks, are we living in a way that matches how we're clothed? Are we living as those in covenant with God, keeping his commandments? And if we are in Christ, if we have experienced the abundant blessing of Christ, are we inviting our neighbors to come and join us in this blessing inviting them in hospitality and generosity and evangelism as an overflow of what God has done for us? I think these are the application questions as we look at this vision. But let's move on. The fourth vision explains the heart of redemption, how Joshua can do the impossible and stand before the presence of God. But the fifth vision explains how Zerubbabel can do the seemingly impossible and rebuild the temple in the face of opposition and discouragement. And if we describe the vision, it's an unusual picture. 
But this fifth vision in chapter 4 gives us a picture of a seven-pronged golden lampstand with a bowl above it and two olive trees on either side. And a branch from each olive tree is resting in the bowl and filling it with an unlimited and continual supply of oil. And from the bowl, two golden pipes feed the seven lamps so that they never go out and never run short of the supply of oil from these olive trees. The lamp represents God's people and the oil, the Holy Spirit. And the angel says that the olive branches are the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord, almost certainly referring to Joshua and Zerubbabel, whom God has chosen to lead this temple project. It's a bit of an unusual image for us. We don't hang around golden lampstands a lot, but I think the point is actually quite straightforward. And I want you to read with me, if you have your Bibles open, Zechariah chapter 4. We'll start in verse 4. And I said to the angel who talked to me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Zerubbabel specifically is told that he will accomplish the task of building the temple, not by his might, not by his power, but by God's spirit who is with him. And if God's Spirit is with us in the work that He has called us to do, then mountains will be cut down and made level plains. And the top stone of the temple, which is the last stone put in place, will be set there, finishing the work, and all will recognize that this was done by God's grace, by God's kindness, by His Spirit, and will shout grace, grace to it. And so God says in verse 10, Whoever has despised the day of small things, whoever thinks this temple looks rather pitiful, whoever thinks it doesn't look like God's at work right now, they will rejoice, for God will enable Zerubbabel to complete the temple, which is the next step in his plan of redemption. What a, ho- what a note of encouragement to God's people. It was a guarantee for Israel that God would accomplish his work of redemption, and each step that he called them to do they would be able to accomplish because his spirit was with them. And for those of us who are united to Christ, God continues to promise his people that he will accomplish whatever he calls us to do for the sake of his glory through his spirit in us. What has God called us to do for the sake of his glory and for his kingdom? Maybe it's parenting children. Maybe it's tutoring children on Wednesday nights. Maybe it's sharing the gospel with our neighbors. Maybe it's teaching in Sunday school and discipling those in the church. Maybe it's putting in the work of discipline and prayer to grow in holiness. All of these require faithful, diligent work, but they all bear fruit, not by our might, but by God's Spirit who is at work in us. Well, God has shown Zechariah a vision of his salvation and the solution to sin In vision number four, he assures Zechariah that the temple will be complete by the work of his spirit. In vision number five, let me briefly then summarize visions six through eight. All three of these visions are shorter, and they all refer to God's judgment in a different aspect of his judgment. 
Vision number six shows a flying scroll with a curse written on it. A curse against stealing on one side and a curse against lying on the other. And this scroll is a huge scroll. It's 30 feet long by 15 feet high, like a huge billboard. Or maybe like one of those signs that's pulled behind an airplane at the beach. And this great scroll declares its warning against anyone who is not repentant for their sin. The scroll flies out over the whole land and it finds out those who have stolen or or sworn falsely and it enters their house and it consumes them and their house. And lying and stealing here are almost certainly representative of all God's law. It's not like only thieves and liars are, are judged. And the message of this vision is a fearful picture declaring that God will act justly to judge any, even in Israel, who continue unrepentant in their sin. Vision number seven then shows a basket, and in the basket is a woman. And the angel says that the woman represents wickedness. And in a sort of brief struggle, the angel shuts a leaden top on the basket, trapping wickedness in the basket. And then two other winged women carry the basket away from Israel and set it in the land of Shinar, which is Babylon. And this, the point of this vision is that God will act to remove all wickedness from the land of his people. The picture shows Israel's sin forgiven and taken away from them, but it also gives us a wonderful promise that one day all evil will be finally removed from the land so that God may dwell with his people in peace and glory as the earlier visions had promised. And then vision number eight completes the picture. Vision 6 showed judgment against unrepentant sin. Vision 7 showed the great promise of all wickedness being removed from the land. Vision 8 then finishes the picture of judgment. And in it, teams of horses show up who go out to patrol the whole land. And if you were here with us last week, you should be saying, wait a second, that sounds familiar. Because vision number 1 was also horses going out to patrol the whole earth. But in vision number one, the horses returned and reported that the nations were at rest. And this angered the Spirit of the Lord, and he announced judgment to come. But now in the eighth vision, as the horses patrol the earth again, they report that in the north, and that's important because in the north is where Babylon is, and it's where all the wickedness was just set down in vision number seven, all the All wickedness was taken into the north. And so now in the north, they report that God's spirit is at rest. Initially, the nations were at rest and that angered the Lord. But now the Lord's spirit is at rest. And the point is that God's wrath has been satisfied. Wickedness has been judged and defeated. And you can see the progress of God's final victory. Judgment against unrepentant sin in the land, the land cleansed of all wickedness, and then the final victory over sin and evil, such that God's spirit is now at rest. Can you imagine being in Zechariah's shoes on the 24th night of the 11th month of the second year of Darius? He was a prophet who was called to encourage God's people in the face of discouragement and disobedience. And Zechariah, in order to complete this task, is given these eight visions, this mural, this, these pictures of hope. 
and consider the whole cumulative glory of what Zechariah has been shown by God. God promises peace, prosperity, and glory for Israel with his presence dwelling in their midst and the nations joining them as they join themselves to the Lord. These visions promise a removal of sin, of God's Spirit accomplishing His purposes, of sin being judged, wickedness being climactically removed, and God's Spirit at rest after final victory and judgment. What a great mural of hope to strengthen God's people. But interestingly, and I hope you still have your Bibles open, because as we come to the end of these visions, Zechariah is immediately given a command from the Lord. He's supposed to take Joshua the high priest and symbolically take him to the temple and put a crown on his head. If you look in chapter 6, start reading with me in verse 12. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, this is Zechariah's message to Joshua in the temple, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Zechariah is told to do this symbolically. In other words, he's supposed to put on a mini play, if you will, which is a prophecy representing what is to come. And just as the visions of Zechariah finish, Zechariah is told to go put on this play which is about the servant of the Lord, the branch, the Messiah that God is going to send. And we find out that though Zerubbabel and Israel are rebuilding the temple in 520 BC, this servant, the branch, is going to come and he will build the Lord's temple in a new and a final way with help from the nations. And he shall sit on the throne with royal honor as both priest and king. And this is an incredibly significant note that the Messiah will be both priest and king. The psalmist, in fact, had already declared that the Messiah would be like that mysterious man Melchizedek who was a priest of God and king of Jerusalem in Abraham's day. That would, he would hold the royal scepter in Zion but also be a priest forever. And so God's people would be hearing that this Messiah was coming. And this, this play prophecy here, coming on the heels of these visions, declare that not just the removal of sin, but all the hope that's painted in these eight visions, all the hope of God's plan of redemption and restoration and glory and judgment will be brought by the coming Messiah. And that is the hope that God's people look forward to. The future priest king who will sit on the throne, who will be the key to bringing about the final rebuilding of the Lord's temple, who will rule and bring about all that these visions show. And as we look back at Jesus, we can see how he is doing this. He took away sin in a day on the cross. According to Ephesians 2, he is gathering the nation so that Jew and Gentile through faith in him are being built into the temple of God. And he has promised to return again and defeat God's enemies, finally to restore peace and flourishing as God dwells with his people forever in glory. See, that's what we're waiting for. The vision of these eight pictures 
is what we're waiting for. It's what's right around the corner as God completes his plan of salvation through Jesus, the branch. And that gives hope to anyone who is discouraged or disobedient if they would return to this God and his promises through faith in Jesus. These are the visions of Zechariah. And I hope that we see the full picture of what God has promised to do and what he is going to do through Christ. And so I end this morning with this comment from commentator Barry Webb. He said, If the fulfillment of hope was not founded firmly on God's word and power and focused squarely on his Christ, then these visions would be nothing but utopian idealism and a pie-in-the-sky dream. But Zechariah's message makes clear at every juncture that God is working with unrelenting resolve and irresistible power to accomplish every promise he has made and every plan he has revealed through Jesus Christ. And that was Israel's hope, and that is our hope as we wait for his return. Let's pray. God, how we thank you for this picture of hope that you have given. How we thank you for this vision of restored peace and prosperity for God's people. A rebuilt temple where you dwell with us forever. How we thank you for this great picture of redemption. Filthy clothes removed and being given pure garments of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ. Oh, may our faith and hope be in him so that in the face of any discouragement that we might face this week, we would have a sure promise of salvation in our Savior. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.